0: So, So one day a sheep went for a walk, and she fell off a cliff. Bummer. But fortunately, she was an unusually agile sheep, and she managed to grab onto the branch of a tree that was precariously rooted in the otherwise sheer rock face. So there she was, dangling from this branch by her forelegs, hundreds of feet above the ground, No way to climb down, no way to climb up. So the sheep yelled upward toward the top of the cliff, Hey, is there anyone up there? Silence. Well, after a few seconds, the sheep tried again. I'm in trouble down here. Is there anyone up there? I need help. Her four legs were getting weak. Is there anyone up there? And lo and behold, she heard an answering voice. Yes, I am here, it said. Oh, terrific, said the sheep. Listen, I'm hanging from a tree that's sticking out of the cliff. Could you get a shepherd's crook or a rope or something and pull me up? Do just as I say, said the voice. I shall not let you fall. Fabulous, but listen, I'm getting tired down here. Uh, could you get a wiggle on? I am the Lord your God, and I am with you, said the voice. Let go of the branch. Bah. <laughs> what? Fear not. Have faith. Let go of the branch. Well, the sheep thought about it for a moment looking down at the ground to hundreds of feet below and looking up at the edge of the cliff, let go of the branch. Um, is there anyone else up there? When we are sheep, or when we're like sheep and we've gone astray, and we're in need of proximate rather than ultimate salvation, when I have fallen or I have lost my way, are literal rather than metaphorical descriptions of our plight, we hope that someone, an actual human being, will show up to help us. Is there anyone up there? A man or a woman in the midst of a real crisis is not picky about who shows up at the top of the cliff, as I have learned firsthand from my work as a law enforcement chaplain. Catholics, Jews, atheists, New Agers, Pentecostal Christians, and for that matter, resentful ex-convicts with a rap sheet as long as your arm, all these folks who would ordinarily disdain a middle-aged Protestant lady minister wearing a uniform and a badge turn out to be able and wonderfully willing to make use of me when they or someone they love is lost or drowned or dying or dead. If only I were the sort of miracle worker who could wave my magic wand and say to the suffering and the fearful, let go of the branch, instead of, I'll be with you and keep you company while the game wardens fetch their gear. I get to be with people in those places and moments when all the theories and ideologies we create to separate ourselves from others have been stripped away. I wouldn't wish those moments or places on anyone, but they are so holy. Still, it's the game wardens I work with who can at least try to affect an actual salvation And that's a wonderful and humbling thing to bear witness to men, mostly men, with equipment and practical skills and loving courage who show up at the edge of the cliff and make miracles happen for the imperiled stranger who needs them. A chaplain colleague of mine said the other day, you know, a good shepherd had better smell like sheep. Jesus smelled like sheep Or rather, he smelled like tax collectors and prostitutes and paralytics and blind beggars and centurions. He smelled like the tears of distraught mothers and the sweat of frantic fathers. He stank of sinners and sickness and sorrow. The good shepherd smells like sheep. I like that. I was in a large American city not too long ago presenting a day-long workshop at a Unitarian Universalist church for a group of perhaps 100 women. And most of the women were my age, give or take, a decade. Nice middle-class women who spoke a language littered with shared references, the Carter administration, for example, but also Mary Oliver and Toni Morrison, Virginia Woolf and Whole Foods. Before we broke for lunch, we all joined in singing a song written back in the day by Dr. Bernice Regan. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. Remember this song? We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes, until the killing of black men, black mothers, sons. Is as important as the killing of white men, white mother's sons. The first time I heard that song, it was straight from the composer's mouth. Bernice Regan had an a cappella group called Sweet Honey in the Rock, and my college friends and I went to hear them in Washington, D.C., way back when I was a student at Georgetown. And after the concert, we all lined up and got to shake Dr. Regan's hand, and I felt like I had been anointed, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. I believed in freedom, and I was 20 years old, so I didn't need to rest. It was 1983, and we were going to fix the whole thing racism, sexism, all of it. Which was, what, 35 years ago or so now? Well, here we all were again. Might as well have been the same group singing that song again as though nothing had changed in 35 years other than our waistlines and the color of our thinning hair. But hey, we aren't resting, right? We, we're, well, we're not actually doing anything much, but we're feeling very strong and determined. And we're singing as we shuffle our Birkenstock-clad feet from side to side as we sway our clean, organically nourished, well-dressed body in a safe, self-conscious Rhythm. And meanwhile, the only non white person in this urban Unitarian Universalist Church building was the guy running the floor polisher out in the hallway. So after we'd finished singing, I went to use the ladies' room, which was occupied, of course. So I leaned against the wall and I chatted with the floor polisher guy. It turned out his son was applying for a job as a police officer at the city police department, which made us cousins, sort of. So I told him about my daughter and my late husband, who was a state trooper. And he told me about his son, who had been called to serve his community. And we commiserated about the worry one feels as a parent when your kid pins on a badge, especially in this day and age. We shared our pride in our children, Our awe at their willingness to show up, risk their lives, and serve. So I asked him at length Do you belong to this church? No, the man said. And he gave me a pitying grimace. I'm a Christian. Fair enough. After lunch, the workshop resumed and I was talking about law enforcement again because really I don't talk about anything else. And specifically, I was telling my audience how much I have learned about love from the cops I work with in the state of Maine. And I told them the story of a young Skowhegan police officer who had been the first responder to arrive on scene at a trailer fire. He literally crawled through fire to save the lives of the young mother and her baby who were trapped inside. Love, you see, that's love and courage. Well, there was a woman in the front row who was scowling at me. That happens to police officers all the time, but it doesn't usually happen to me. When it does, it seems only to happen at UU churches. The woman set her jaw and flinging her attractive natural fiber scarf more firmly about her shoulders, she asked what she clearly believed would be a slam dunk rhetorical question Would that cop have crawled through fire to save the mother and child if they had been black? After a moment, I said, Well, I don't know. The Skowhegan police officer was black. The mother and the child were white. But I don't think any of them were thinking about that at the time. The police officer smelled of smoke and fear that day. He stank the way saviors do. How do you love a wayward sheep? Or do you love him? Would you rather not get the smell of wool grease and manure on your hands? The tone of the woman's voice, the one in the front row at that UU church, and the way she asked the question, would, would he have saved the mother and child if they had been black? That's what stays with me. She probably wouldn't phrase it that way, being a UU, but that woman probably sees herself as a shepherd not as the shepherd maybe but as one of those who are in the midst of saving the world and i imagine some guy dangling from a branch with a hundred yards of air between his feet and the stones below crying help give me your hand and the woman hears him and she asks are you a police officer Yes, I am. And she replies with that fastidious, certain scorn in her voice, Then let go of the branch. How do you love the wayward sheep? Or should you love him or her at all? If it's a bad person, a mass murderer, say, who is dangling from the branch, dropping a few stones down on his head... Might feel justified, right? If he is or has been designated literally Hitler, why should you even try to rescue him? Why not just walk away and leave him? I read a book recently by a young woman named Abby Johnson, who for eight years was the manager of a Planned Parenthood clinic in Texas. Brought up in an evangelical Christian church, Abby was a regular at Sunday services until the pastor there found out what she did for a living. And she was kicked out of the evangelical Christian church. So she and her husband began attending an Episcopal church, the one with the rainbow flag outside and the pro-choice sensibility that everyone in town knew about. At the clinic where Abby worked, Wednesdays and Fridays were procedure days, abortion days. And on those days, pro-life protesters would appear, without fail, bright and early, and they would stand outside the fence at the edge of the property, carrying their signs and praying and attempting to talk to patients as they arrived for their appointments. Sometimes the protesters actually managed to persuade a woman to turn around and go to the crisis pregnancy center up the street instead, More often, they were ignored. But the protests went on week after week, and Abby, the clinic manager, got to know some of the regulars pretty well. If nothing else, she admired their sheer tenacity. And because they were unfailingly polite and friendly to her, she began to return their greetings. Now and then, they even had actual conversations the kind that begin Do you think it'll rain on Monday? Or Will the Cowboys win the Super Bowl? Cowboys are football, right? No, okay. And when she had a baby herself, they expressed sincere and unironic joy. Then one day, one of the protesters, a young woman around Abby's age, asked her to have lunch with her at a diner. Abby expected the protester to harangue her about her job, but they had a pleasant meal talking about their toddlers, their college days, their plans for the future. More time passed, months, years even. Abby and the protesters continued to have what was for Abby a disorientingly friendly relationship. She thought they were wrong about the issue. But let's face it, the pro-lifers believed that Abby was complicit in murder. Then one day, Abby, who again was an administrator, not a medical person, was asked to assist during the termination of a 12-week pregnancy. The ultrasound technician was out sick that day, so Abby writes, she was asked to hold the instrument onto the patient's abdomen so the doctor could see the image of the fetus on the screen. Unfortunately, this meant Abby also saw the image of the fetus on the screen, a little creature kicking its little legs, and she saw the fetus die. And that was it. She walked out of the clinic, and into the arms of the pro-life protesters who had been there every week, week after week, for eight years. They smelled like sheep. Or maybe she smelled like sheep, and they smelled like shepherds. The pro-life pastor at the evangelical church did not want to smell like sheep, did not want to smell like Abby. And when the pro choice Episcopal congregation found out, the pro choice Episcopal congregation found out that Abby had changed her mind about abortion, they kicked her out too. No sheep smell was going to cling to them. This isn't a story intended to change your mind on choice and abortion. Instead, I'm thinking about those protesters who, as Abby herself describes it, were good shepherds patiently they loved her even when even when they believed heart and soul that this woman was facilitating and organizing the murder of innocent people right there in the building in front of them they did not despise or shun her they did not speak of her with scorn they loved her even when she was not lovable and in the end, from Abby's point of view, they saved her. As Unitarian Universalists, we are called to honor the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. We are asked to tolerate different ideas, different ways of seeing the world. The pseudonymous psychologist Scott Alexander has questioned those who, like us, lay claim to tolerance. They, he says, meaning tolerant people, would claim that they are tolerant because they do not despise gays, lesbians, bisexuals, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, transgendered people, and Jews. But if you ask that same person a simple question, well, what's wrong with gay people? The answer is immediate and indignant. What do you think I am? Some kind of homophobic bigot? Of course there's nothing wrong with gay people. Which, Alexander points out, is Great, but then you're not actually tolerating anyone or anything. You've mistaken tolerance for approval or friendship or fellowship. The word tolerance implies there's something to tolerate. I like Alexander's definition of real tolerance. It is respect and kindness shown to members of an out-group. And not respect and kindness towards members of what other people define as an out-group, but rather respect and kindness toward people that are out of your group, as you yourself define it. That definition reflects values like grace and charity, both of which imply that there is something for God or for our neighbor to forgive, something that has to be tactfully overlooked, in your relationships with others. When there is nothing to forgive, nothing to overlook, no patience required, there's no tolerance, there's no grace, there's no charity. There is, and let's face it, isn't this the attraction of intolerance? There is no stink of sheep. Tolerance is such a low bar, and too often we don't even manage to clear it, let alone to clear the higher bar of steadfast, faithful love. This is the gift and the challenge we are given in love and through love. So many chances to serve and save, witness and wait. The chance to be the shepherd who does not privilege the cleanness of his own hands over the saving of the sheep, The rescuer who does not stop searching, trying, showing up. The one who does not lose faith. You know, a preacher always preaches what the preacher needs to hear. So this is my prayer for myself today. Oh God, let me reek of grass and lanolin, grain and hay, May my hands be dirty, really dirty. And may my tired boots track honest manure across the threshold when at last I have let go the branch and fallen home to you. Amen. Thank you.